but I will say that the interesting thing about that space is how quickly they had to adjust to becoming a DTC player. There may be bits and pieces that they nibble off on, but some, at some point you gotta like you gotta break the middle and and rebuild fundamental systems that have to have changed. Man, I, I feel like my mind is just absolutely blown. Like I cannot imagine my company getting 50% of its revenues from people we don't know. I mean, that, God, that would scare me. But SaaS, obviously, like they can pivot quickly because there's no brick and mortar. Hey guys, welcome back to the Result Junkies podcast. When Paul and I finished up last week, he was in the middle of asking me a question about uh, restaurants and why we don't embrace technology in that industry. And then we ran out of time and you left the country. Like I'm seeing all these pictures of you, like, you know, bulking up on the beach and jumping around in, in the water with Dana. What's that all about, man? Uh, you know, we just wanted to take a little parents trip away from the kids. And we just went down to our favorite place in St. John, uh, down in the, U- uh, the U.S. Virgin Islands. And five days later, no sunburns, good tan. Um, probably going to be dry for a couple of days, though. I think I might have overdone it a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> you, you uh, Having spent a couple of years on the road with you, you absolutely do epitomize the work hard, play hard strategy. So I'm going to. I'm, I'm going to say I'm not surprised, and that sounds awesome. I think there's a, there's a compliment in there somewhere. I'll take it. I'll take it. Yeah, you'll hunt around for it. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. You uh, Have you been going anywhere? Or are you? Oh, it was crazy. It was crazy. I, the, the short version is um, I showed up to a, a United flight and, um, and looked outside, and the, uh, this was on the snow day that we had last week, and uh, the plane did not have a windshield wiper because the motor was broken on the windshield wiper. So went into full panic mode. Two planes... Uh, two diversions uh, later, I, instead of uh, Reno, uh, tried to land in Sacramento and San Francisco, and then ultimately had to rearrange those flights to get back to Reno the next morning. It was um, it was the epitome of COVID craziness with travel right now. The thing about it is, you are probably the person that I know that loves travel the most, and I bet you enjoyed all of that hassle. <laughs> I gotta be honest, I like it's really grown on me, mostly because we're wearing masks the whole time. So it's just, it's a drag. Um, and, you know, not to pimp my other podcast, but if you want to hear the, you know, the 10 minute version of that, you can look up the miles to go podcast. And I, Richard and I went into more detail on it, but I think that's, you know, like when you think about it, it's all those diversion stuff. And we've talked about it frequently, but did you guys, um, did you guys bring your own COVID tests with you to the island or did you test at the hotel? Uh, so we did not have to br- uh, test to come back here uh, just because the U S territory, but we did take our own tests just to be safe. Um, okay. And so we, uh, we actually tested ourselves, uh, on the way back out. Uh, so we had to test three days prior to going there. And then we tested ourselves with our like travel kits or whatever on our own on the way back. And then one final test, uh, in our car right before we walked in the house, just to be extra sure we didn't bring anything into the kids or the grandparents. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's interesting. Cause I was in the U S Virgin islands, um, for like, 75 minutes, um, you know, back in October, um, while we were hopping over the British Virgin Islands, we landed in U.S. Virgin Islands and we had to, we had to present a test on arrival in the U.S. Virgin Islands. Oh, you do have to do that. Yeah. That, that's still the case. So you have to take a test three days prior, put it into the U.S. travel portal and get that color code. Yeah. 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 Which is a pain in the, you know what. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, hey, did you get your palette of tests? 
I got my palette of tests. It is no longer a palette of tests. It is dwindling quickly. And, uh, and I bought, uh, I bought a couple pallets of masks while we were, uh, while we were away too. So it's going crazy. We've, it's COVID wildfire out there and we're, we're, we're testing like crazy. Ah, uh, okay. At some point after the show, I got to pick your brain on this. That okay? Yeah, you let, you let me know. Let me know how many you need and where you need them. I am, you're my guy. Uh, you're I my said, dealer. You're my dealer said, now. Unless you're, I'm your dealer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You want some of these? Uh, you got to email uh, show at results junkies and uh, tell Ed you want tests. Apparently, he's our dealer now. Yeah, it only took 15 episodes, but we've now figured out how to monetize the podcast. It's Ed's going to be selling COVID <laughs> tests at the end of every episode. Oh, it's so 2022. I love it. I love it. <laughs> uh, and I got to tell you, like this whole world of masks, I wish we had time to like dig into that. But I'm like, like this underbelly of like the, the price changing almost by the hour. Um, folks who um, like I like when I first started to try buy masks, call it two weeks ago, there were a few people that didn't want to sell you just a case. Um, they really wanted you to buy a pallet. And I convinced a couple people to sell us cases so that we could test a few masks. And some of those folks in the span of, call it less than 10 days, are now like, yeah, we, we just, we can't sell you a pallet. We, you know, we could sell you a container, but we're just really not doing any orders smaller than a container right now. You're like, uh, that's, uh, you know, that's a quarter million masks. I'm, I, don't, I don't need that many. <laughs> How about a pallet? And I never thought I'd have to like have an argument with somebody to only buy a pallet of something. Well, from what I've heard in that industry, it's it you know the big orders are coming in from from companies and municipalities, and on the other side, there's a supply chain squeeze, and yeah, it's sort of the reality of how things are. If you've got a if you've got a few big customers that are willing to buy, you just sell them. And spreads are amazing. Like you know, KN95 masks were like wholesale eight cents a piece, ten cents a piece. Um, you know, call it uh, you know three months ago. And I'm seeing prices anywhere from like fifty cents to uh, to a buck fifty for a KN95 mask. Not even so an N95. Wild. That's so yeah. wild. Yeah, and it's the same mask. Not like they manufactured it in the last three months or sitting in a warehouse somewhere. Right. So there's they, these guys are riding the wave. It's like they bought GameStop stock back That's in June. So wild. <laughs> it is wild. It's crazy. But um, so yeah, well, um, real quick, folks, before we before we dip in, um, as Paul said, you know, like if you've got questions for us, um, show at resultsjunkies.com is a, a great place to find us. And uh, Paul and I on social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, he is at Paul Singh, and I am uh, at Pizza in Motion. So you asked um, you asked a question about about restaurants and and why we we do or don't embrace uh you know technology and i think like there's a two-part answer there um so the the first part is um you know you talked about social media and i want to narrow into that part specifically and i think part of part of this issue is that it's a generational thing and that a lot of the folks who are involved in restaurants at an operational level are are coming up against bumping up against the wall of call it quote unquote aging out um, a lot of the folks that I started in this industry with are are older than me, and they're pushing late fifties, sixties, but but they still control a lot of the franchises in the country, and so social media to them is like this thing that they hear about on TV. Um, so so that's a that's a that's an issue there. I think as restaurants change hands to to younger generations, we'll likely see a bigger push into social. But on on the flip side, there's this web of technology, um, and a lot of it very antiquated because it all ties back to the point of sale system and. Um, you know, when this sort of ties back to our Uber discussion as well, because when, when COVID first hit and all like a whole bunch of restaurants, like, oh my God, I got to have every delivery platform I can have. 
Uber used to have this platform. They were one of the few that had it this way, where depending on what point of sale system you had, they couldn't integrate with a lot of them based on the way that their stack was built versus the way the point of sales were built. They didn't make their stuff backwards compatible where yeah. companies like DoorDash did. So their solution was they would FedEx you a tablet and they'd charge you some fee for it. And you would have to have this separate tablet alongside your point of sales and somebody would have to keep checking it for orders. So now you've got like two point of sale systems and one, you know, like all these like complications and it has to be able to navigate through your firewall for PCI compliance and like all this like in-person brick and mortar, messy, gooey stuff because you've got, you know, credit cards are tokenized in a Verifone terminal, which is a separate system from your point of sale, which is separate from your Uber tablet. And all these things somehow have to get everything to the same person in the kitchen that just needs to make a burger. Um, and it's a, it is a veritable mess, but it's sort of like the way the airlines build stuff. Like nobody's, very few people, like you, we talked about Toast, I think, on an episode, a handful of episodes ago, which is a, a point of sale startup, um, which has very new lean technology, um, doesn't have a ton of integrations, but has very new lean technology um, and, and probably does interface with like the Uber Eats and all that stuff, um, you know, without a without an API. Um, but the old stuff is just, you know, spaghetti on top of spaghetti. And so the, the restaurant owners are not necessarily tech savvy. So there's really nobody who has that day to day ownership of trying to connect with customers in a new way. Yeah, I mean, th just listening to you talk about that, um, it sort of feels like there's a lot of parallels to, you know, the retail sector as well. Um, I've been thinking a lot about that since we chatted about this last week, too. And it's I think what you're saying is right. I think what you're saying. I think what you're saying is, is that the two big things that are holding the, the restaurant industry back is the leadership and the technology. Yep. And and we've seen that, you know, in agriculture, we've seen that. I I definitely see that on the retail side as well. Uh so it'll be interesting to see how it how it sort of uh plays out over the next couple of years. But lots yeah. of opportunity there, right? I mean, I I I still stand by the statement that the biggest money to be made over the next 10 years is is going to be at the intersection of online and offline. The 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 absolute question though is when. Uh, you know, I don't think it's yeah. 20 years from now but I don't think it's like two. <laughs> so, well, I think, so I think a lot of it still, a lot, of, a lot of it still revolves around necessity. I mean, if you think about, and I'll, I'll use five guys as an example here again, you know, when the pandemic started way less than half of the system was on a third party delivery platform and even a significantly smaller number, we call it 10 or 15% had more than one delivery platform. And in 35 days, um, every single one of the 1,400 restaurants in the U.S. Well, okay, there was a couple that didn't, but like almost every single of those 1,400 restaurants went from zero or one platforms to five. And the, just like this rapid acceleration through like, we have to like, oh my God, all our sales disappeared. We have to pivot. We have to pivot now. And now it's just a normal part of our life. Now we just deal with it. It's here. It's, you know, it, we had to adapt. Wait, 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 wait. Say that one more time. So... How many restaurants in the matter of five days went from... 35 days. In 35 days, because the platforms couldn't take us on quickly enough. In 35 days, um, uh, 700 restaurants went from zero platforms to five. And another 700 went from one or two to five. That is in wild. Yeah. That is absolutely wild. I, yeah. Why it don't people talk about that more? I mean, that, that, is, that is like classic technology you know, eating the world where you go from like, you yeah. know, incremental, incremental to all of a sudden. And that, you know, in hindsight, yeah. that's what it always is. Yeah. And, and there were uh, uh, like in true fashion of things breaking, like there were multiple franchisees, ourselves included, who had 
five-figure and six-figure sums of cash owed to us by these platforms, and they couldn't figure out how to pay us. So it was an absolute mess, but it, it, it be it, it birthed all of these systems, um, and we're still dealing with it. We still don't have great accounting for, you know, how to deal with refunds and problems and stuff like that with customers and third party because we don't we don't know who they are. So there's there is this problem of like we're losing touch with our core customer, um, and the technology itself is is in some ways good for the customer that can't get out to our restaurant, but when things go wrong, we don't have a great way to talk to them. So there's still pieces of this model that are fundamentally broken because at the end of the day. I think when you buy something from walmart.com and they send you, you know, your example of cough syrup from last week, when they send you coughs, when they send you cough drops instead of cough syrup, like you sort of expect, you sort of like going to McDonald's, you expect that your order is going to be wrong 30% of the time. You don't expect somebody to answer the phone and apologize for the cough drops instead of the cough syrup. Um, but at the restaurant world, like if you get a bad burger, you want to talk to someone and these companies just don't allow that. We don't know who they are. Uh, yeah. you know, I, Uber Eats doesn't tell us who you are, DoorDash, none of those folks. So I, I can't fix it. You call me and say, like, you screwed up my order. I ordered through DoorDash. And I'm like, okay. Like, I, you know, I have no idea if you ordered from me or not. So my options are, you know, make you prove it through some arcane series of steps or apologize and give you a free burger and, and hope it works. But there's still pieces fundamentally, you know, as you say so frequently, like this, this intersection of online and offline that the, like they literally haven't built the ramp. Like there's a highway up here that's online and there's a road down here that's offline. And then there's a ramp that needs to go between the two. And cars are literally like driving off the edge and hoping they land on all four wheels. And sometimes they do. And other times they rip the muffler off. I think that the future of retail and the future of restaurants and the future of a lot of other adjacent and similar businesses is going to be uh, about introducing an experiential aspect to that relationship between the customer and the company. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and I don't think anybody really knows what that looks like yet. I certainly don't. But we're, you know, you probably know better than I do, but, you know, you've got companies like Yum Brands and Taco Bell that are, you know, uh, I think last time I saw, they've got half a million people on a taco club membership. Yeah. You know, yeah. and then you've got Panera doing their free coffee memberships now. I mean, it, it, it's it's almost as if, a lot of those, and I don't mean this in any condescending way, but it's almost as if the retail uh, and restaurant space is kind of where the tech industry was about 10 or 15 years ago. But the amazing yeah. thing is it's not going to take 10 or 15 years to get to where we are today. And I think that's terrifying or inspiring, depending on which side of that that wave you're going to be on. Yeah, it's it's, it's an interesting question. Um, I, I think you're right about it not being 10 to 15 years. I'm not, like, if you made me if you if you made me if I was the casino and you made me set the book, I'm not sure where I'd put the over under, because I, as I said, like a lot of these folks who are older franchisees, if they're in their fifties uh, and they they control large parts of this environment, there may be bits and pieces that they nibble off on, but some at some point you got to like you got to break the middle and and rebuild, um, and so the the, uh, the fundamental systems that have to have to change that that may or may not. I love it, man. I wanted to pivot for a second, um, you know, because we talked about uh, email questions, and I know you were out of the country, so I'm not going to put you on the spot. But we, um, uh, if we're talking about the the intersection of online and offline, like Paul and I put together the the podcast format, and you know, there were bits and pieces, and still are bits and pieces of the tech that don't work as well as we want them to, and so. We've, we've got that show email address. And so there's some people that sent us uh, emails that we didn't get to. Um, and we believe we have all the pipes worked out now. And I know at least part of it's working because 
Um, we did get a listener question a few days ago while um, while you were sunning yourself, which I love. Um, and so there's a question in there from uh, or some comments in there from Eric for you that that will tee up for uh, for next week. But there was one for me about um, rapid PCR tests, and I think that um, I think it's an, an open um, an open topic as to the, who the winners and losers are going to be in this space because the technology has been around for a while. But I think it's worth mentioning to folks. It's been, it sounds like you and I are going to talk about it offline. But um, there's a company called Q Health, C-U-E, Q Health, that um, I ordered a test kit from that I now have in the house for PCR quality testing in the house. There's another product that Eric flagged um, called, uh, called Detect. Um, and I'm not endorsing or um, or picking winners or losers here. I think it's more just as folks are trying to figure out how to manage this next phase of the pandemic where we need significantly increased testing to have accurate information, these sorts of machines are going to come in uh, come into play in a big way. And I think it's interesting in that without getting overly in the weeds about this stuff, like you and I talk about how different companies are going to charge for things. Um, you, know, you guys are dealing with this at Bump. All of our all of our startups, you know, struggle with maybe not struggle, but they talk about like how do I how do I package stuff? And I think it's interesting that in a lot of cases, um, you know, like the, the these companies, like these PCR companies, are looking and going through this same iteration, and that you can buy some of these machines, um, you can buy a subscription, you can buy a cheaper version of the machine if you commit to a certain number of tests. Um, it's like they're all over the board. Some have dashboards if you need to keep track of employees, but they're trying all of these things to like to, they're, so they're trying to take testing and really shove it into almost like a hardware as a service model. And I think it's interesting. It's not quite, you know, bump boxes for COVID testing. Um, but it's interesting to see them hurdle through these models because as I looked at these models, they've changed their pricing model like two or three times in, in call it 15 days. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if they're not done yet. I, I'm I'm waiting for the uh, subscription service to come out. Whoever's doing that, it's it's inevitable, right? Somebody's going to say, "Hey, pay this much money, and we'll send you I don't know eight tests a month or something like that." I'm I'm surprised I haven't found that yet. Yeah, I think like so those those services do exist, um, but they're they're being tied around these machines. So like somebody will send you like eight emeds or eight Binx nows or stuff like that. I haven't seen anybody who's doing specifically that. I think part of that is just because some people are buying such large quantities. But there, there, these these companies are essentially saying like, we'll give you a machine if you're if you agree to commit to a certain number of tests over the next year, which is interesting because who knows where we're going to be sixty days from now on what the needs are for tests, let alone a year. I I think the interesting thing about that whole industry, and I'll admit I know nothing about that space uh, other than you know as a customer. But I will say that the interesting thing about that space is how quickly they had to adjust to becoming a DTC player. Yeah. that That's yeah. incredible. I, I mean, it's absolutely incredible. Uh, yeah. You know, it, it kind of in line with your thoughts earlier or your, your comments earlier about how quickly, for example, five guys went from like zero to 700 plus restaurants on delivery services. I mean, that, that. I mean, for people like you and me that have been in the tech world for 15 or 20 years, I suppose that that sort of growth rate is like normal. It doesn't surprise us, but yeah. it's really cool to be seeing that in, in the real world. And I think we're going to see even more of that. I think, I think maybe the, you know, I, I, maybe the, the big takeaway there is to, to, to start thinking now about where you think those changes are going to be and in whatever industry you're in and, and, and making sure you start to position yourself ready 
ready for them. Yeah. I, and who knows? Like, sure. I mean, when we, I, before the pandemic, I never envisioned a world where over half of my transactions in a restaurant would come from a third party platform. I was like, why, why would I pay 20% to give away half my customers and not know who they are? Like, that's crazy. Wait, is, that, sudden, is that real? Is that real? You're yeah. Paying, you're, would you say 20% of your sales? Aver- we're at, no, 50% of our sales are averaging, you know, call it roughly a 20% commission. And I don't know who any of the customers are. Wow. And, and that's yeah. up from like nothing t- two years ago. You know, all your sales at the restaurants were direct. Yeah, for, for for us, yeah, nothing three months before the pandemic started. We launched our first DoorDash test with uh, three stores um, in like October. That's incredible. Of 19, yeah. That is incredible. Yeah. yeah. I mean, but, but at what point, and I know we're we're over time here a little bit, but but like yeah. at what point do you, what at what point do you think restaurants are going to have leverage over the delivery provider? So right now, those delivery companies own the relationship with the customer and and you're essentially the supplier and they're the marketplace and you know so so like at what point do you think that the the maybe the tides change do they you know at what point i guess maybe the blunt question is what if anything would it take for you and hundreds of those restaurants to be able to say to the delivery folks hey we're not going to list on your platform unless you allow us to have a direct relationship with the customer. Yeah, I think a lot of restaurants are afraid to talk to other restaurants right now about what their deals are. And I think that's the only way this happens because right now we're decentralized. Um, so all of us individually are, you know, are, are negotiating our own deals. And I don't know what Chick-fil-A is negotiating and they don't know what I'm negotiating. And so like if we think back to, uh, I, and I, I do think the arc will be similar. When I think about, when I think back to Uber and drivers and them organizing for benefits and and having strikes in certain cities and, and and fighting to be recognized as whatever, you know, you know, whether it was they want to be considered an employee, they don't want to be considered an employee, they want safety, they want security, all of those things. Like all of those things happened when they worked as a collective. Um, and also what we saw was, I think, on the flip side, like, you know, surge pricing, like like there was a lot of, of, of angst from customers on surge pricing. There was a lot of negative social media and there were people navigating away to other platforms, um, you know, away from Uber to Lyft and even secondary and, and tertiary companies beyond them. And so I, what we saw there was um, sl- slowly but surely, like what, you know, what Uber took as a piece you know, got smaller either because surge pricing became less prevalent or they decided to give more to the drivers because of things that the drivers needed or wanted. There were discounts for customers now because it wasn't just all Uber black service, but effectively the market pushed the pricing down. And now, you know, like nobody really makes money um, in that space that I can see. Uh, maybe they will at some point. But I, I do think that that likely this all will follow that same arc, that we'll have some some level of of, of downward pressure on pricing and, and the Ubers and DoorDashes of the world will have to figure out how to get by with, with more just because I, I, like restaurants have these built-in hard stops. I can't go back to my landlord and say, look, Uber Eats is charging me 30% now, so I need you to drop the rent 10%. I'm just locked into my lease for the next 10 years, and that's a hard cost. So unless I can create new customers, I can't, I can't combat that fee. And so like a brick-and-mortar business is going to have a longer arc to be able to rebuild their business because there are fundamental pieces there where they sign long-term contracts that they can't get out of. So the, the, and it goes back to a lot of the stuff that we invest in like SAS, obviously like they can pivot quickly because there's no brick and mortar. They're just trying to sell to the next customer. They don't need to worry about how much space they need to display 
bathing suits or baby diapers or anything else. Yeah, man, you know, I, I'm going to say this with all the respect in the world. I wish I had a little bit more time in the day because when I, when I listen to you talk about that stat, you know, 50% of your, um, when I listen to you talk about that stat of 50% of your sales across hundreds of restaurants coming from third party services and you have no relationship with that customer, like my brain immediately goes to how do we activate the end customer, whether it's through, you know, little QR codes with a little discount just so we can cookie them or, or something. Yeah. Um, like, I think that there's a lot of tactics in the DTC world that, that you guys ought to be using to build your own audience. Like I, I know I'm going to sound kind of, um, I know I'm going to sound a little, little weird about this. Uh, but you know, I think now more than ever, whoever controls the relationship with the crowd will control their ultimate freedom. Couldn't agree more. And uh, while I'm not willing to cop to them on air, I will um, I will cop off air to some things that we've done from a guerrilla tactic standpoint to wrestle those customers back into uh, our pipeline. Um, so more to come on that when we stop the record button. Uh, I love it. I love it, man. <laughs> we'll we'll have to figure out some way to tell tell folks about that. I didn't know which way this uh, today's episode was going to go, but man, I, I feel like my mind is just absolutely blown. Like I cannot imagine you know, my company getting 50% of its customers or 50% of its revenues from people we don't know. I mean, that, God, that would scare me. And, and it's fascinating in how it happens differently at different stores demographically. Um, you know, Reno, Nevada, like you'd think Las Vegas, like with everything that we have going on there um, and Reno being a completely def- different demographic, um, that Vegas would be the highest uh, percentages that we have for third-party delivery. And Reno is 10 points higher than the system average for my nine stores in, in Nevada. They're 57% of their orders come from third party. 57%, almost 60% of our customers with no idea who they are. You know, the other side of this, by the way, is, uh, in, in, you know, you didn't have to go very far on the tech tour together for somebody in every city to be, you know, saying something like, gosh, can you imagine all these delivery companies, da, da, da. But, you yeah. know, even you brought this up at the, on the last uh, last episode about, you know, these these delivery companies and is it smart for Walmart to do it or not? But I had no idea about those numbers. I mean, if 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 the if fifty percent of restaurant revenue is coming from these third party delivery services, now it makes even more sense why Walmart and others are getting into the fight. I mean, now you're talking about like it, it, it's a war. It, it's definitely a war. I mean, whoever's going to own that relationship now is going to win. And there's just a lot of money. I, I don't know. I, this is all like normal to you. I don't, I'm surprised like to you, this all seems normal. I'm sitting here thinking like, oh my God. <laughs> so that's amazing. Yeah. And I feel you know, like you loop around the Walmart thing and it's something that I wanted to loop back on it. And I think just based on, you know, where, where you and I both are for time this week, we're probably going to have to do the same thing we did last week, which is like float the big meaty curveball out there and and see if uh see if we can swing at it and this time i get to throw the big you know meaty curveball um so we talked like we had this concept last week for folks who may not have listened if you didn't listen i don't understand why go back and listen to last week's episode but um we had this discussion about uh you know the middle ground between old school re- re- uh, re- retailers and new school startups and this philosophy of you know hey Walmart, are they equipped to come in and, and jump into the space? And I made some notes when we had that discussion that I wanted to loop back on. So 
I'm going to, I'm going to throw this out there as the question for you to answer next week, which is sort of like, I, I think there are some examples of companies um, that we've seen in the past that have tried to pivot into a space that was adjacent to the one that they were in, that in theory, they could have been a, a, a subject matter expert in, but there were large fundamental, um, fundamental parts of how their business model that was built that culturally they were never really going to be able to pivot to this other thing. Um, and so um, I'll throw out a couple of, of, of names for, for folks to chew on for next week. Um, neither of which some folks will have heard of, especially if you're born before, like you know, born after like 1995, but um, independence air, which was very near to dear to my heart in the DC area and, and laser courier. But um, but the thing I'm going to put you on the spot on for next week is I want I, I want you to be ready to say why you think that like the Walmarts of the world are are equipped, not that they want to and they're ready to, but they're that they're equipped to come in and eat the lunch of these other providers that you know, the Ubers and the DoorDashes of the world to take to take share from them in this space. I'll talk more about it next week, but I'll tell you exactly why. It, it's because of all the stuff we've been talking about together over the last couple episodes uh, around the cost of acquisition, right? When when iOS and all those things changed the entire game for everybody back in April of 2021, uh, it became inevitable. It is now a war for uh, a direct relationship with as many customers. I mean, it's it's a war for first-party relationships now. And let's talk more about it next week. But when you tie all these topics together, like the last 10 episodes of everything we've talked about, it's obvious. It's obvious why DTC companies like us have to go horizontal. But it's also obvious to me why large players like Walmart have to wade into that fight. Because the the money they were going to spend to get to those uh, customers, it, it would have cost orders of magnitude higher. So anyway, let's talk about, I'll be more prepared next week, but <laughs> we're going to, maybe next week is going to be where we tie together the last couple of weeks of uh, topics here. But yeah, it, it's going to be fun. I know you got to go. Uh, we got a busy week ahead of us, but uh, yeah, look, I, I think I'll also tease one more thing. I got some uh, fun news next week. Uh, all good stuff. Uh, good for the podcast, good for the audience, good for me, good for Bump, good for North Star, good for everybody. So it's gonna be fun. Yeah, we didn't get a North Star update. You want to try and squeeze one in real quick before we uh, before we run away? Uh, yeah, you know, I uh, maybe the little teaser I'll give you is like, um, so it, it it it's just I track the number of people that use it uh, at least once every twenty four hours, and we've hit record after record over the last five or six days. I haven't been promoting it or anything like that. It's just organic, but. Uh, uh, as of right now, well, of course you weren't promoting it. You were drinking in the islands. I was, I was, but it looks like, uh, here we are mid January. We're at, uh, 7,100 people using it every 24 hours now. That's awesome. So that's pretty and that's cool. All since, and that's all since we launched the show. It's all since we launched the show, but Hey, look, you know, I'll, and we'll talk more about it next week, but I'm not trying to promote North star on the show as much as I'm trying to point out that everything I'm telling other people to do in terms of building a first party relationship with your audience, your peers, all that stuff, like I'm doing it too. I mean, North Star is free. It has to stay free. It has to provide enough utility for people to use it. But ultimately it's it's a distribution mechanism for our podcast, for our, you know, for whatever else we put in there. And I just share that as an idea. Like if you're sitting out there right now wondering about 
what you're going to do in 2022. And we're going to talk more about this next week when I, when I tell you what I'm doing. But uh, like, you should be thinking this way. I don't care if you're an accountant or in restaurants or in manufacturing. I don't really care, but it's applicable to you now. We're all DTC companies now. All right. There's the tease. Can't wait for next week. Put you on there the hot spot. Put you on the hot seat, and I'm just going to sit back with a beer and catch up with your uh, with with you from the islands. <laughs> hey, well, I hope. Hey, in the show notes, make sure you put that uh, put a link to that um, to Dana's video. People can see me do my little dad jump into the ocean, <laughs> toss a beer, and my pit vipers. I, I hope my fellow uh, geriatric millennials will appreciate my pit vipers. Uh, check it out in the show notes. Check, please. <laughs> until we uh, until we do this again, man. Next week. All right, buddy. Have a great day.